We're in our January sermon series. And every year, if you've been a part of Mount Hope, we come back in January to talk about foundational practices that should be a part of our faith. And I get it with this sermon series. I know how this can feel. I think that this sermon series sometimes can feel like a little bit like going to the dentist, right? You only see the dentist a couple of times a year, but you know when you go to the dentist, the dentist is going to tell you a bunch of things that you've been doing wrong over the last few months and the things that you need to fix and the things that you need to correct. I personally have never gone to the dentist. Maybe you've had this experience. I've never gone to the dentist and had the dentist say to me, wow, you, you flossed too much. Like, stop the flossing. Turn, peel back the floss. I've never had anything like that happen. Normally, they're taking that little tool and they're saying to me, do you see where it's sticking right there? And I say, yeah, I see where it's sticking. They're like, that's a little decay. And I'm like, I remember you told me that six months ago. It's still the same this month. But that, it feels like a little bit like that coming into this sermon series. And we're going to come into this sermon series, and we're going to talk about reading the Bible, and we're going to talk about praying, and it can feel like going to the dentist and knowing that the dentist is going to say, oh, you flossed a little bit over the last six months. You need to be doing it more. And you say, I know, I need to be doing it more. And then you leave, and then you don't do it. That can be how this sermon series works. That you come in, and you, and, you, and you say, and we say, you should have read your Bible more last year. And you say, I know, I should have read my Bible more last year. And then we say, well, you should do it more. And you say, all right, I'll try to do it more. And then you leave, and then we don't really do it anymore. And so my hope of this sermon series is not that it would feel that way. My hope and prayer for this sermon series is that we're reminded of a couple important things. One is... No matter how far along you get in your relationship with God, it's always good to come back to the fundamentals. If you go watch professional athletes play a game, before the game begins, you will watch them do the same fundamental drills that they've been doing since they were teenagers, or maybe even earlier. They're going to shoot the same free throws. They're going to practice the same arm motion. You're going to practice the same blocking technique. You're going to practice the same stroke or swing. It's the same thing they've been doing year after year after year, day after day after day. And if you go to the opera or you go see the Boston Pops, you're going to hear professional musicians, people at the top of their craft, who are going to, to warm up with the same scales and the same notes that they've been using for their whole lives as they've been playing their instruments because there's something important about coming back to the fundamentals. So my hope is that every single year we'd come back and we'd say, no matter how far along we get in our relationship with Jesus Christ, we will not keep progressing unless we come back to these things that are so important. It's not just about the big moment on the mountaintop where God does something huge. It's about the day-to-day -day fundamental work of growing in our relationship with him. And so that's why we come here. The other reason we come here is because it's a reminder of who we are as a community at Mount Hope, that God's given us certain things, foundational things that we believe in and that we follow and that we try to put into practice with one another. And so my prayer is that in the sermon series, it would be a bit of a renewal, that we would be reignited and not, not feel guilty and not feel beaten down, but that our passion for God's word, our passion for prayer, our passion for generosity, our passion for the community would be reunited as we come through this series. We're also going to talk about these things a little bit differently this year than we have in the past. Because there's something that after the past couple of years with 
isolation and quarantines and pandemic and everything else that we continue to walk through, I think has been brought up over and over again in our lives. And that is that some things are good to do alone by ourselves. There are things that are good to do alone. But those same things, they're just better together. And I think over the past couple of years, that's something that we've felt over and over again. And maybe it's different things for different people. For some of us, you say, yeah, having a cup of coffee alone is a good thing. I like doing that. But you know what? It's better with other people. A cup of coffee, dessert is better with other people. Celebrating a holiday. It's, it's nice when you're by yourself to have a day off work and to spend time alone, but it's just better together. I don't know what it is for you, but there's certain things that are nice to do alone, but they're just more engaging, more exciting. They're better when they're done with somebody else. One of the things I try to do in, in my life, and sometimes I'm better at it than others, is, is every once in a while, maybe a couple times a week, I try to get out and, and do some running and do some, some exercise. And so when I go out and when I run or I run on the treadmill at home, I try to run for a half an hour. And I got to tell you, that half an hour, I'm always glad when it's over. I'm glad that I did it. But when I'm in the middle of that half an hour, when I'm in the middle of that time, it is never something that I'm real fired up about. It's never something that I'm real excited about. I will do anything I can to try and distract myself from the reality of what I am doing. I have all sorts of headphones and things that light up and things that I'm listening to and things that I'm watching if I'm on the treadmill to try to distract myself from the reality of what is happening. And I'll look at my watch and I'll say to myself, it has to have been 20 minutes. And I'll look down and it says three minutes and 30 seconds. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. But something happened a couple of months ago. A couple of months ago, uh, Dan Rakich, who's a part of this, this church, he said to me, he said, hey, what do you do on Monday mornings? And I said, well, I get up, I get ready for a week. And he said, well, what if we met, started meeting on Monday mornings at Horn Pond in Woburn, and we just ran around Horn Pond a couple of times on Monday mornings? I said, great. So uh, with the weather and everything else, we haven't done it in a few weeks, but for a number of weeks in a row this fall, Dan and I met at Horn Pond as early as we could on Monday mornings, and we ran twice around Horn Pond, which is four miles. It took us about 15. As we run together, and I run fast. Good to do by yourself. They're nice to do by yourself, but they're better when they're done with other people. to be praying. You need to be having personal time with God. You need to be finding time alone to read God's word and alone to pray. And all of that, we've lost something. Because the reality of the Christian life is that it was
one with you and God. This is a new idea. This is not how it was lived out after Jesus was on the And this is what Paul says to the church. We're here in Romans chapter 15, verse 5. He says, may the God of endurance and encouragement. I love that. How, how much endurance and encouragement do we need? Paul says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify the Lord and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul blesses the church, he doesn't say, may the God of encouragement, endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another that on your own you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's always the community, always together. So we're going to talk about these things, uh, these foundational principles, and talk about what it would look like for us to do them together. And this Sunday, we're going to talk about reading God's Word. We're going to talk about this book this Sunday. This book that is the primary way that God communicates with his, fathers, his followers. If you want to hear God's voice speak, this is where God is still speaking. God's Holy Spirit continues to speak to this Word. If you want to hear his voice this year, this is where you go. It strikes me in that verse right before the verses we just read in verse 4 of chapter 15 that Paul writes these words. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Right before that, those verses we read, God, Paul says to the church, he says that these words were written, not just for you as an individual, not for your instruction one-on-one, -on -one, not so that you alone might have hope, but that we as a community might know what God wants us to do. And that the God of encouragement and endurance gives endurance and encouragement through these words, Paul says. If you need some endurance for this year, some encouragement for this year. Some hope for this year. This is where we go. 
And it's not just for you one-on-one, it's for the community together to come to God's word and see what God might have to say to us. If you remember one thing walking out of here this morning, this is what I hope you'll remember. It's good to read the Bible alone. It's a good thing. But it's better to read it together. It's good to read the Bible alone. It's better to read it together. And what do I mean by together? I mean, it is better in your life, in my life, if we come into the community and we come into the church and what we just did when we took communion. We read God's word together. So many of us, we we oscillate back and forth between either allowing someone else to read God's word and, and, and have them do all the study and then they come and tell us what they read or we only read it on our own. But coming together as the church and reading it together or finding small groups where we can study God's word together. And certainly when we talk about together, we mean reading it together with the Holy Spirit and his voice in our lives. It is interesting when you look back because my whole life I've been taught in church that I need to be reading the Bible on my own, that that's the way the Bible's to be used, that I take it into my personal study time and I read it one-on-one, me and God. But that's a really new thing. In fact, it wasn't even possible that long ago. I'm not going to go into the entire history of the printing press this morning for you, but in the 15th century, things really started to change. But that's 1,500 years after the life of Christ where no one had their own copy of this book. And even then, it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before it got to the point that people had their own individual text that they could have in their house. That's a very recent thing. And there's certainly still places in the world where that doesn't exist at all. And so we've taken what was meant to be communal and meant to be corporate and meant to be a shared experience and we've made it very personal. And I don't think that that's necessarily bad, but my question this morning is, what have we lost in that process? All these books that we read, they were never read one-on-one. They were always read to the group. Paul would write the letter of Romans to the church in Rome and they didn't print it out and hand it out. They didn't just forward his email and say, hey, when you have some time, read this. The church gathered and they picked up the letter and they read it out loud to the church and the church listened to the words of Paul and together they interpreted and together they asked questions and together they they sought out what God might be saying to them. That's how this book was put together. That's how it was intended to be used. So the big question for us is, how could we do that this year? How could we help that take place? And in fact, I'm going to take a big risk this morning. All right? I don't know how this is going to go, Jeanette. Thought about this all week, prayed about it. I'm not sure how this is going to go. But I'd like to, if we can, even right now, Study a little bit of God's word together and see what God might say to you and to me as we listen to and read God's word together. So I don't have a lot of notes for this next part. This is on us reading scripture together and seeing what God might be saying to you and to me and the community as 
And for our passage, I went back and I picked out a passage of scripture. It's in I'd encourage you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 8. And so Bill uh, Sullivan has sheets that he's going to pass out to you. And Brian Demers has sheets he's going to pass out to you. So you can take these, these uh, sheets and take a look at them. And if you are watching online, I know there's, there's a, a few of you. You're welcome to participate here with us. You throw something in the chat. And then the people that are upstairs there, you can... Uh, you can relay it down, write it on a paper airplane and throw it down or just shout it if something gets put in the chat and you can participate that way. But we're going to take a moment and we're going to study a little bit of God's word together. We're in the book of Nehemiah here. Let's talk about Nehemiah for a moment. Let's see what we can learn together. I've actually gone back and I've picked a passage where God's people hear God's word read aloud to them. As we think about what God might be calling us to in reading his word and understanding it together. So let's start. Before we get into this passage, before we get into this text, what do we know about this guy, Nehemiah, in this book? I mean, in the room. Some of you are panicking right now. I'm not going to point at you and call on you. But if you know something, share it with us. This is the value of being together. If you know something about Nehemiah and you know something other than the fact that, you know, when I was a kid, they used to say, who is the shortest guy in the Bible? And it was Nehemiah. You get it? Nehemiah. If you know something other than that, Jeanette, what do you, what do you know about Nehemiah? Minor prophet. All right. He's a minor prophet. All right. Okay, what else, do we, what else do we know about Nehemiah? Yes, Anna. He returns to uh, rebuild the wall. Right. So he returns to rebuild the wall. So what's, what's that mean? The city of Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians. And now they're under captivity by the Persians. And Nehemiah, he leads a team of people to go and rebuild the city wall around Jerusalem. You can imagine, right? Living far away from home, knowing that your home city was destroyed. And Nehemiah had the opportunity to go and rebuild the city wall. So he leads a team of people and they get that done. In fact, when we come to chapter eight here, that process is complete. They've rebuilt the walls around the city. Anything else you know about Nehemiah before we read here? He was the cupbearer to the king. Excellent, Cassie. That's the benefit of being the JBQ director right there. You get to know some of these facts. So Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the Persian king. What does that tell us? What does the cupbearer do? The cupbearer gets to taste the wine before the king tastes it to make sure it's not poisoned. That's Nehemiah's job. How would you like that position? That's his whole job. But that's a place of high trust. Because if someone's going to take out the king, Nehemiah's in the position to do it. So the king of Persia, even though the Israelites are in exile... Trust Nehemiah. He's in a high position in the kingdom, even though he's, a, he's an Israelite, Hebrew. He's a cupbearer to the king, which gives him the permission to ask to go and do this. Yeah, Carol. Yeah.
Yeah, thank you, Carol, for that. So Carol was saying that if you didn't hear that when Nehemiah comes to speak to the king, you, you see their close relationship because the king looks at Nehemiah and he says, why are you sad? And he cares for him. It's really interesting. You have the, the king has Nehemiah's people in exile. They're, they're enslaved in his kingdom, and yet he's worried about the emotions of Nehemiah and his sadness and wants him to be happy, so he allows him to return home. One thing that I think is really... Oh, Mark, please. That's right. It gives him resources, gives him, gives him uh, letters for passage and, and things to help rebuild the wall with, gives him the, the uh, materials and things and the people. One of the things that I think is, is interesting too here is, you know, give or take, we're, this is like 430 BC, 400 BC. So chronologically, even though Nehemiah, if you look it up in your Old Testament, Nehemiah is early on in the Old Testament. Chronologically, Nehemiah happens at the very end of the book. This is one of the last things that happens before Jesus shows up on the scene because there's 400 years of silence between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. So chronologically speaking, Nehemiah rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem, this is one of the last things that happens in the scripture before Jesus Christ Comes. And I think that's an interesting thing because where it's placed in the Old Testament canon, you don't necessarily get that, that sense that this is happening when it's happening. So Nehemiah chapter 8 we come to, and you have it in front of you. Now picture this. Nehemiah has faced all sorts of opposition rebuilding this wall. And they've gotten the wall rebuilt. And now, after the wall is rebuilt, it's time to rebuild the people spiritually. The physical city's rebuilt. The spiritual life of the people needs to be rebuilt. And that's where we are in Nehemiah chapter 8. As I read Nehemiah chapter 8, I'd encourage you. If you see something that's interesting to you, you see a word repeated, you see a phrase repeated, something sticks out to you, just mark it as we read it. Underline it, highlight it, circle it. And we'll come back to it. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard. On the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it. Facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose and, and beside him stood. All right, here's where, here's where it gets tricky. I, I picked this passage. I did this to myself. Here we go. Mattathiah, Shema. Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand. And Padiah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashan, Hashabadah, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. Don't judge me. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord, their faces to the ground. Also, Yeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Yaman, Akub, 
Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kelida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book of the law, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the back of your paper with the passage of Nehemiah is a real simple outline that I'll use sometimes when studying scripture. It's, it's called SOAP. Scripture, observations and questions, application and prayer. SOAP. And so I'm going to give you a chance here for a couple of minutes to do some SOAP work on your own. What do you observe in this passage as we read? And what questions do you have? Take a minute. Either think about it, write something down. What sticks out to you? So I'm curious, and you can keep writing if you're still thinking, or maybe someone will say something that will spark something in you. I'm curious. What are you observing in this passage? What questions do you have? What sticks out to you as we read? Yeah, Lai Fong. The people had long attention spans, right? And you're reading the, the book of the law. That's, 
if I'm understanding it correctly, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I, mean, I don't know if you want to flip back and just see how many pages that are. that is, but you can imagine standing there, all the people listening to all of those books of the law read. So long attention spans. Absolutely. What else do you notice here, Jeanette? Okay, so it's at one of the gates of the city wall, this brand new constructed wall, specifically at the water gate, which is probably where the fresh water came into the city. So King Solomon, David's son, had built all sorts of fresh water systems that could bring water into the city of Jerusalem. And that's probably where this water gate is located. So this is an important spot, the place where the fresh water comes into the city, where, where things are, are, are done and people gather. So that an important place. What else, Cassie, do we notice? Yeah, I think it's a good question. And I don't know that I have the answer for you right now either, but it's a great observation because it is interesting that, that all are being counted in this passage. We can go back and look at the original Hebrew to see exactly what words are there. But that is it. And I, I have that same question. Like, what does, it, what does that mean all who could understand? I think I have that same question. It's just kids, I would guess. But like, was there a an age cutoff? Was it a, an aptitude test? Were they, they taking the MCAS and then you could get, like, come in and listen? I don't know. I, was, I like that question. I have the same one. Yeah, Carol. So you talk about a long attention span. Not only did they read all five books, but then they also preached on those five books. This is actually just a fun side note. You know, one of the things we talk about reading scripture together, and some of you know that our, pre, our team, we have a preaching meeting every Tuesday morning. We don't, we don't build our sermons on our own. We build them together. And Thomas attends that meeting a lot. Uh, Justin, Andrew, Ting's in that meeting. Pastor Rick, myself, Pastor Marvin. There's a, there's a whole group of us that gather regularly and some people that come in and out uh, sporadically because I, I love preparing a sermon and preparing reading scripture in the group. There's different perspectives or different ideas. But Carol, for me, in, in my ministry and in my preaching ministry, Nehemiah 8.8 is my go-to verse. When I pray about preaching, this is the verse I pray. God, help me to read your word clearly. Or help me to read your word and give the sense clearly so that people understand. That's my verse. So it's just a, an interesting little side note there. Maybe it's interesting to you. It's interesting to me. But that's my go-to verse. Nehemiah 8.8 for preaching. I love that verse. What else, Cassie? Mm-hmm. And they're giving out the curse. And it's really easy for us to look inward 
Yeah. Yeah, you said something there that I don't think I had, I had really thought of before. And that is, you know, I, I think about the weeping because they, it's been so long since they've heard the text. Probably for many of these people, it's the first time in their life that they're hearing this text read like this. They haven't heard this at all. And so they're realizing all these things that they should have been doing, all these, all these sacrifices they should have been doing, all these rules they should have been following, and they haven't been doing it. And so there's this great guilt and this, this condemnation sort of feeling that they have, and they're weeping. But you brought up something else, and that is that within the Torah, there, there would be all sorts of stipulations. If you don't do this, you will go into exile over and over again. And so they're living in exile, and there's this realization that their current life situation is a result of the fact that they haven't been following this. That's really interesting insight. I hadn't thought of that. Yes, Scott. The significance of the first day of the seventh month is it the one day of the gathering rejoice? Okay. Is that you're saying something that, that I'm not I'm not hundred percent on? Right. So that, that's a gathering day in the law. That's, yeah. yeah. That's good. Okay, so in Numbers 29.1, it said that's a day that they're supposed to gather. That's good. Anna, what else? Sure. So preparing your heart before you hear the word Amen. is an important thing. Yeah. That's great. So the, it, we just talked about the reaction after the fact, but now the preparation beforehand in order to hear what God is saying. Cecile, what else were you going to add there? Sure. That is interesting. And how much should our, our physical expressions be engaged in our worship? Right? We see that with the people, whether they're raising their hands or bowing their faces to the ground. I wonder, I wonder what we've lost there over time as we become more reserved with our physical expressions of how meaningful God is and who he is in comparison to who we are. Yeah, Jenny. Yeah, I was wondering that too. In fact, I asked Pastor Rick that just the other day. I'm like, why do you think they're, they're, they put the names there? And he's like, I don't know. Why do you think they put the names there? <laughs> so we, we went back and forth on it a little bit. But I think one of the things that sticks out to me 
is you, Ezra's in charge here. Ezra's the high priest. Ezra, Ezra's in charge. But yet you have this massive crowd of people and Ezra's standing on the wooden platform that they built. This is a wooden platform we built for this purpose of reading the law or reading God's word. But there's all these other Levites scattered through the crowd. I mean, there's no amplification system. And for some reason, it's important that they get named, that this just isn't Ezra on a stage. And I actually was thinking about this yesterday. What does that mean for, in our Western culture, we love to have one person's name and lights when it comes to church world too. And yet here, it's not just Ezra's name and lights, but it's the whole of the priests ministering to the people. Uh, and I love that they're all named and that they're all, they're all mentioned there. But I think that's something worth keeping, uh, thinking about and praying about. Why does God do it that way? Angie, one more, and then we're going we're gonna to move on to application here. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I picture the, I don't know how you picture it. I picture the scene of you have this one, one massive platform. It's almost like one of those outdoor like concerts or something. You have this one massive platform, but then you have these smaller gatherings around these other priests and Levites. It's just the people can't hear it. They're too far back and they can't get the sermon or the interpretation that we're talking about in verse eight. And so now these individual Levites are helping out and ministering to these smaller groups of people throughout the crowd. It's good. So we have all these things we've just talked about. The preparation before the word is read, the actual reading of the word, all these Levites and names that are mentioned, the response of the people to the word. And I'd like for you to take a moment. I'd like for you to take a moment in that application section. You don't have to write a huge paragraph. What's one thing? What's one thing that you're, that you're taking away from this passage this morning? What's one thing that you could put into action in your life? And then I'm going to invite you in that last space there, after you write that application, ask for God's help in prayer. Not one of us can live any of this stuff out on our own. And so it's right that we would come before the Lord and ask for his strength to do it in prayer.